evening, and welcome to City Watch on WBAI, a watchdog program for social, economic, political, and cultural issues here in New York City. You were just listening to Cohen Sabor Latino with Marisol Sarderda, and I'm happy that you're with us today. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. I'm also joined in studio for B- WBAI's continuing coverage of the Queensborough President's Race by David Brand, who is the managing editor of the Queen's Daily Eagle. And we're going to get to our conversation with David in just a few moments. But first, I'd like to give you the news of the day from our correspondent, Celeste Katz-Marston. More cases of the coronavirus have been confirmed in the United States as China continues to take measures to stop the spread of the illness. At a news conference Sunday, New York Senator Chuck Schumer urged the Federal Department of Health and Human Services to declare a public health emergency so the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention can access $85 million in rapid response funding to fight the virus. All CDC has to do is declare the coronavirus an emergency and that will spring up to $85 million that's immediately available it's already been appropriated so that CDC can do everything it can to prevent the spread. Schumer's call for an emergency declaration came the same day as CDC officials said a fifth patient with the ailment had been identified in Arizona. Chinese officials have limited travel in the wake of the outbreak, which is believed to have originated at a market in the central city of Wuhan. In national news, President Donald Trump teed off on California Congressman Adam Schiff, a House manager of the ongoing impeachment proceedings. Trump called Schiff a, quote, corrupt politician and probably a very sick man who has not paid the price yet for what he has done to our country. In an appearance on NBC's Meet the Press Sunday, the Democratic lawmaker said he felt Trump's tweets were meant to send a message. And this is a wrathful and vindictive president. I don't think there's any doubt about it. And if you think there is, look at the president's tweets about me today, uh, saying that I should pay a price. Um, you take that as a threat? I think it's intended to be. Defense attorneys for Trump, who denies he abused his power by pressuring Ukraine to investigate political rival Joe Biden, continue presenting their case to the Senate this week. Trump and his predecessor, Barack Obama, numbered among those mourning the Sunday death of basketball icon Kobe Bryant in a fiery helicopter crash in Southern California. One of Bryant's four children, 13-year-old Gianna, also reportedly died in the crash. A 20-year veteran of the L.A. Lakers, Bryant was an 18-time NBA All-Star, often called one of the greatest players in the history of the game. In a 2018 interview, Bryant had told ABC's Jimmy Kimmel that his daughter might well carry on his legacy in sports. The best thing that happens is when we go out and, and, and fans will come up to me and she'll be standing next to me and they'll be like, hey, you got to have a boy. You and V got to have a boy, man. You have somebody carry on the tradition, the legacy. She's like, oh, I got this. <laughs> you know, for that. I got this. Like, that's right. Yes, you do. You got this. Kobe Bryant was 41 years old. And in local news, just weeks after pulling out of the race for Brooklyn Borough President, Rafael Espinal is resigning from the city council, New York One reported Sunday. Espinal, first elected to the council in 2013, is moving on to a new job at the Freelancers Union, the report said. Known for his push as a councilman to overturn the city's cabaret laws, Espinal previously served in the state assembly. Last year, he ran for public advocate in a crowded race, which was ultimately won by fellow Democrat Jumani Williams. 
And the NYPD's Hate Crimes Unit is investigating an assault on a transgender woman on a subway train this weekend. Journalist Serena Danieri told police she was on the C train at 155th Street and St. Nicholas Avenue Friday night when a couple struck her in the face, spit on her, and knocked her phone out of her hand. Police are asking anyone with information about the case to call Crime Stoppers at 800-577-8477. WBAI is supported entirely by listeners like you. Go to give2wbai.org to support free speech community radio. Give to, that's the number two, wbai.org. For WBAI New York, I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. Now, back to City Watch with your host, Jeff Simmons. Thank you, Celeste. And Celeste mentioned about Rafael Espinal dropping out, uh, well, dropping out last week of running for borough president, but also resigning his position in the New York City Council. The other political news that broke this afternoon is about someone we had in the studio here only about a week and a half ago, Ruben Diaz Jr., considered one of the leading contenders to run for New York City mayor if he had officially tossed his hat in the ring, announced in an article in the New York Times that just went online that he is not going to seek the mayoralty. And he said the primary reason for dropping out was that he wanted to spend more time with his family uh, than would be possible either as mayor or as borough president. We had him in the studio here about a week and a half ago, and he conceded about some of the fundraising challenges that he had. I will repost a link on our uh, Twitter feed, uh, Forces Driving, after the show, the interview we did with him, if you'd like to hear more of that interview. Uh, but he has been a uh, rather uh, outstanding Bronx Borough president for the last number of years and has announced today that he's not going to run for mayor. So that field already seems to be, uh, it seems to be narrowing. So in studio, we're going to get to uh, another election that's happening, uh, a race that's happening rather quickly on March 24th in Queens. Last Thursday, I was joined in studio by Christine Chung from the city to interview several of the candidates for Queensboro president. Three candidates we spoke with, Donovan Richards, Costa Constantinidis, and James Quinn. Tonight, we're going to talk to two candidates, uh, Elizabeth Crowley and Anthony Miranda. But joining me in studio is journalist David Brand, managing editor of the Queen's Daily Eagle, which is Queen's only English language daily print newspaper, covers Queen's legal justice system, the DA's office, local politics, and the borough's diverse local communities. And we're also going to talk a little about his background because he wasn't always a journalist. Welcome to WBAI. Thanks for having me, Jeff. This is awesome. Tell me about your background, The Switch. What were you doing before becoming a journalist? Because that's fascinating. And why The Switch? Uh, well, I was a licensed social worker uh, after a pretty long career in social service as a case manager for people who used to be homeless in supportive housing, uh, and then a social worker. And I ran programs that fused physical health and mental health at different supportive housing sites around the city. So I was working in four of the five boroughs. Uh, and while I was doing that, I was able to set my own schedule working at different places. So more and more began to freelance uh, for different publications in New York City. And that was my real passion was journalism. And social work fulfilled a lot of the journalistic curiosity by going into new situations, learning about how people, especially low-income people, people who have experienced homelessness, uh, lived in New York and after a while, I couldn't suppress my passion for journalism anymore. So started doing both the social work and journalism at the same time and was in the right place at the right time and got this opportunity to 
begin the Queen's Daily Eagle, which started uh, about, let's see, 19 months ago. So June 2018. And talk about the type of coverage you like in the in the Queen's Daily Eagle. Uh, well, we are, as you said, the only daily uh, print paper in Queens, the only English language daily. So, you know, we get a chance to do a lot of coverage. Um, and I particularly like covering, like you said, the Queens DA's office courthouse coverage, which the Queens Criminal Courthouse in particular has been kind of pretty undercovered. Uh, especially as larger publications have moved away from coverage in Queens. So we can fill a void there. Um, our The launch of our paper happened to correspond with a lot of really cool things in Queens politics. So our first issue was June 25th, 2018. The next day was June 26th, 2018, and that was the primary, which Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez defeated Joe Crowley and really, you know, Queens always on the map, but that kind of turned Queens into the epicenter of the progressive political movement uh, and now you see every week a new article that's the most overused political trope, I think, in uh, New York politics, maybe American politics right now, the AOC of this location or this race. And so we've been there from that that getting started and then uh, the DA's race, the only really hot race in New York City in 2019 because the DA in Queens is elected in an off year. And so it started as uh, a DA race, that's a snooze, turned into really a hot race in New York City around the country was getting detention. There was a profile of Tiffany Caban and the racer DA in The New Yorker. Mm -hmm. So it was a, a cool time. So you cover a lot of politics and government. One story before we get to our first guest, I do want to bring up you just reported on something which is rather important uh, in Queens that the state budget doesn't include any new funding for NYCHA. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, it's kind of hard to believe. NYCHA, which has been beset by disinvestment for decades uh, they hired an independent consulting firm a few years ago that determined they needed $31 billion, more than $31 billion, in five years to meet the, their capital needs. And they're probably never going to get that, but now they're not really getting much at all. So the governor in his executive budget uh, didn't allocate any new money for NYCHA, allocated, reallocated money from previous years. That's part of a an agreement with the federal government that NYCHA has to get permission in order to spend uh, the money that is supposed to be allocated to it. Uh, so, yeah, I guess and, this and, investment continues. And I would expect uh, affordable housing and homelessness will be issues that the borough president candidates are asked about in the campaign. Yeah, and I think you see with Donovan Richards, who you had as your guest your previous episode, uh, in his district, they just converted a NYCHA complex to the RAD program, the Rental Assistance Demonstration Program. And that seems to be the way that things are going right now. You know, historic disinvestment in public housing. And so the solution now is to try to turn it over to private management, but it becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy where if you starve it of public funds and say, well, it needs the private investment because it's not getting any private public funds, uh, yeah, it kind of creates or exacerbates the problem. So let's go to our first guest tonight. On the line now is police reform advocate Anthony Miranda. After two decades of law enforcement experiences, he retired as a decorated sergeant. And during his time in the NYPD, he received a number of commendations and decorations. But he also encountered challenges. I believe that's how I kind of met him. Because when I was a reporter, I had spoken with him after he had founded the Fraternal and Advocacy Organization, the National Latino Officers Association 
Association in 1996. He's a Fresh Meadows resident, and among some of his issues, he's advocated that Queens be, uh, should be a sanctuary city, that we must decriminalize poverty, and we also have to do more to end the school-to-prison pipeline. Anthony Miranda, welcome to City Watch. Thank you so much for the invitation. I appreciate it. So why pursue the position? Why do you want to become the next borough president? I think that as a Queensboro president, we're not a juncture that we need to have an independent voice, a person that is not compromised by any special interests, um, and a person that can advocate on the rights of the people and is willing to take on the fight that's ahead of us. There have been drastic changes going on in Queens, but the community has been eliminated from that conversation, from the voice at the table. And in order to, to have that kind of uh, progress, we need to have somebody else. And that's why I decided to run. Most of the candidates have all been uh, elected officials who serve, some to say, for 12 years, 8 years, 10 years. And I believe they've taken us as far as they possibly can. And if, they, if they've done all they can do in their current positions, then there's no reason to give them more time to further put us in the hole that Queens is facing right now. Uh, so I think you need an independent voice, a person who's willing to listen to the community, get the pe- people motivated. Uh, and activate that base. And we've had that opportunity with uh, with the uh, Ocasio race and with the Caban race. And I think we had an electrifying awakening of our community. And they're looking for a voice. They're looking for representation that they can identify with and that they could feel was going to truly represent their interests. And I think that's uh, the decision I made to represent Queensboro president. Uh, Mr. Miranda, this is David Brand uh, from the Queens Eagle. And thanks for joining us tonight. And we spoke a few weeks ago about uh, community board appointments because there's kind of three nuts and bolts functions for uh, the borough president. One of those is making appointments to community boards. Um, there is some really severe disparities uh, in terms of community board demographics versus the representation or the demographics of the districts they represent. Wondering what would you do to ensure that community boards uh, better represent the districts that they are supposed to be representing? First, I would centralize the process and say that anybody uh, educating the community about what the community boards are, making sure the information is available to all the different districts, and then centralizing the process when people apply, they have one central location that they can apply for these positions. And the Queensborough presidents would be that office. I ran into a number of people who said, I applied, never got a response back. I applied, I wasn't even interviewed. Uh, these are things that could not, should not happen. I think we need to term limit the position as well so that these don't become lifetime positions. I mean, we've also had the recent controversy is community board members that are employed by some of the developers who are directly have oversight or voting rights over the project's approval in their community. I mean, so the rules aren't have not made it illegal for that to happen, but we need to clarify the rule structure and make sure we don't have that same conflict of interest. They're functioning just like like our elected officials who receive real estate money and then are going to approve the projects that happen in our community or claim to represent the residents. So it's the same process. Who who were the people that were coming to you uh, and saying that they applied but that their applications were lost? Like what what was their race or their gender or their background? Because there's disparities on – there's several different disparities. Again, I I had women come to me. I had people of color come to me, say that they had applied and did no response. Then you had other people who complained that uh, the community board was just not doing anything for the community as well. And I think that's where we need to change. So you, I had African-Americans and Hispanics, and I had women who, who had come to me and saying that they were not represented. They never got an interview, uh, and they were never told why they were disqualified. Again, this is something in the process that we can't allow. That communication is crucial 
to ensure that we have the fairness. And I think the last base I'll tell you is this. The, the city councilmen have recommendations. They make recommendations. The borough president has the final approval. If the community council people are saying that they, again, can't find any qualified candidates or anybody interested in the position, then I think that's where the Queensboro president can be much more effective. And not only centralizing the applications, but then also forwarding applications, saying, here are 100 more people that are interested in the position. Please interview them and make sure that we have the diversity that we're looking for in the community board. We're kind of at an interesting time with community board appointments because there's the acting borough president right now who will be making those appointments, which are, are effective April 1st, which is only seven days after the special election. Would you open up applications uh, later on, or as some boroughs do, have rolling applications throughout the year? I think we could do both. I think we'd open it up. I think, again, they're going to participate in the process, and so we're going to create a more open process. And I think the communication level in terms of advertising those positions to all the different communities, activating that base and saying that people are interested, these are the requirements of the position, this is what the responsibilities will be, making sure they're clear about that, and then inviting them all in for an orientation. Again, all these things can be centralized to the Queensborough President's Office so they have a more effective response and they can work more effectively in, in the things that the community needs. So, uh, Mr. Miranda, I had seen in a, a tweet that you had done uh, about a week and a half ago uh, that you were deeply disappointed in uh, Melinda Katz's current record as Queens DA and her past record as borough president. Where do you believe she's failed? What prompted that tweet? Again, I, I think it, she, she made promises about making changes when she became the DA, right? Again, she just totally went against what her word is, not what anybody else expected of her, but simply the promises that she engaged in. And I think we have to hold people accountable to their words. Um, when we talk about the, again, her position in Queensborough presence, the fact that we had this many problems in the community boards is one issue. The other issue is that the entire, you know, the overdevelopment of Queens and what's been going on with, again, the community has not been involved in that process. So we have to hold her accountable in that respect. There's no way you, you can't say that she's done the best job possible. And if, if she's, I don't, and this is the other thing. I want to talk negative about a person and the fact that they don't have the position anymore. I believe that there's a lot of complaints that were received after the fact. I also believe that there were a lot of elected officials who witnessed the things that were going wrong and failed to exercise their obligation to correct the injustices. Right? So there are still people in current positions that are then, they all complain about her now, but they were all in positions to hold her accountable and they failed to do that. So for them to come out and speak out against her now, I think it's kind of hypocritical at this point for them to start criticizing of failures when they also had a responsibility to hold her accountable. Um, but the diversity, the representation, the equality of the boards, uh, the fairness of the, the picking the process of having community board representatives, I think that's all uh, turns out to be, uh, you know, a, lack, a failure on our administrative part that they didn't do a better job at that. We want to talk to you about your relationship with Hiram Montserrat, who uh, contributed to your uh, campaign account. He seem, You seem to be close with him. You, you appear at a lot of events together. Um, and he's got a really problematic history. He was expelled from the Senate after being charged with domestic uh, violence-related charges. He was later convicted of federal corruption charges. Um, and, you know, it, from a political standpoint, he also caucused with the Republicans earlier in his career in the Senate. So tell us about that relationship and uh how long, how you, how you know each other and what his influence is on, on your politics. 
Okay, so let's handle it. I know I know a number of people, right? So we're, we're talking about one individual that happened to be that happened. Ohio Montserrat was a police officer with me. He was also one of the board members of the National Latino Officers Association. Um, I don't condone the conduct that he engaged in, but he also served his time and again served the time. And we are a reformed type of community, right? We promote reformness, but we are, are we saying that we only have reform and forgiveness? For all the other people and incarcerated and all the other people that serve time, or is just not Hiram Munster, right? Is he the exception to the rule? Are we being hypocrites about our position in that respect? Other than that, I say he's also been elected as a, as a district, as a, I believe, the district leader in Queens. And he also is part of the only Hispanic, Hispanic uh, Democratic club in Queens also. So if the people elected him and the people are the ones who make that choice, that's not a choice that I need to question, right? Because he is an elected official now representing the district. And that's the people's choice of who they have to represent them. My role is this. I'm not running Hiram Montserrat. I'm running Anthony Miranda's campaign for Queensborough president. I have a diverse group of people that represent all the parts of Queens. And that includes East Helmerson, Corona area. And that includes the various district leaders that are supporting me. Um, so, I, again, it's about my campaign. My campaign is independent. It's run by a diverse group of people. And we get resources and help from all parts of Queens community. Will, will you support Montserrat uh, for state assemblies challenging Jeff Aubrey? That's that's not my race. I mean, my race is for Queensboro president. And I says in all those decisions, I guess, will be made at that particular time. But that is not the function of what I'm concentrating at this time. I'm concentrating on representing the people of Queens so that they have a fair voice in the Queensboro president's race. So you don't want, you won't say if you're going to endorse him or not? Well, not, again, it's not the question of Hiram Montserrat. This question is about Anthony Miranda's race for Queensboro president. And this is what I came on the show for, right? I'm running for Queensboro president to represent our community in the best way possible as an independent voice that's willing to take on the issues that our communities have been suffering with. And they've been compromised for so long. And I think the people are looking for to have an independent voice that's really going to have those fights. So, so I'm, going to continue, I'm going to continue in that relationship. So I want to just ask a question or two we posed to some of uh, the other candidates this past Thursday. Uh, placard abuse. It's been a consistent issue that a number of people have raised. Do you feel that, uh, you know, as borough president, you would make this one of your issues to crack down on placard abuse? I think if it's a complaint that the that we've had and it has to be investigated, there has to be a streamlining and accountability of all use of placards by by everybody, not just in the Queensboro president's office, but I think any these packets are given out by the city. They're accountable. Um, so to, to the people that function and have a, a reasonable expectation of, of necessity, then uh, they'll be awarded accordingly. But if there have been abuses, then I think we're going to take a fresh look at that and examine who is eligible, who has gotten them in the past, and who doesn't need to have them, and then cut and then discontinue the practice if it's not needed. Another nuts and bolts function of the borough president is to uh, have an advisory role on land use. And the previous borough president uh, co-chaired a task force on Willits Point uh, and what to do with the land there. What is your goal for uh, development at Willits Point? I think for Willits Point, we need to ensure that we have the community's input. Again, this most of the most of the outcry about the development in Queens has been a lack of involvement for the residents and the community immediately around these these projects. So we have to make sure that we exercise all the proper community intervention as possible. 
And I think that we're looking for a development that's responsible building and responsible development. We want to increase the opportunity for business and employment. And if there's an affordable housing, we're talking about responsible housing, not the affordable housing that currently goes on, where it's not affordable for anybody that lives in the, in the immediate community. We're talking about building that has to ensure that we have uh, um, labor union contracts as part of the deal. We have to ensure that there's going to be union availability, uh, employment availability. We need to ask about specific jobs and opportunities, not just these, oh, there's 20,000 jobs. What kind of jobs? How long are these jobs? What what are the various positions that people are involved in? And what's going to be the process for people in our community to be eligible to work in in that immediate area? It's not for employing other people outside, but we also want to make sure that we have community jobs, community employment, and long-term employment in not just the, the bottom job, but the managerial positions as well. And uh, when we talk about, again, we're talking about affordable housing, I think it has to be, one, built toward the income of the community that's being built, and two, it has to give priority to the residents that actually live in Queens if we're doing these projects. Would you support a soccer stadium there? That's one of the plans put forth by the task force. I think there's been several plans um, that, that have been proposed, more than one, more than just a soccer stadium. And I think there's things that have to be, we have to explore everything that's on the table, and I think I'm in a position to say that soccer stadium is the most appropriate thing in our needs right now. I think Queens is suffering from a housing shortage. They're suffering from a lack of availability of, of public education institutions. So I think it's not just about a stadium or an opportunity. Where are, the, where are the opportunities for businesses and employment? And what are we doing about improving the conditions? I think we have some basic needs in Queens that come before any stadium, right? But if a stadium is the project that provides the additional services that we need in Queens, then we have to have that kind of conversation. But I don't think that a stadium is going to solve the housing crisis that we have in Queens, affordable housing or the responsible housing. And I I don't think it solves the the issue of the the loss of jobs and the loss of small businesses in the borough of Queens. We only have a few minutes left. Um, How deferential would you be to community boards on land use issues? Would you automatically, as some have uh, indicated, that they would automatically defer to the community board uh, desire on land use? No, I think what, when, what community boards generally complain about is that they have a lack of information and input, that the people making presentations don't even come to them with actual data. I, I started a, committee, a couple of community board meetings where the people making proposals, the developers, didn't even have the plans to present. I said, how could you expect them to do their jobs properly if they're not getting the proper information? And if a developer doesn't feel that they have the responsibility, other than just to check off a box, but have an actual responsibility providing information, then we shouldn't be approving any project that has sufficient information and sufficient community input about what the impact is going to be. And think about all these luxury developments that are being done right now. They've never done a feasibility study to see what the impact is or the strain is going to be on the resources that only exist in that community. They didn't build any additional resources to supply another 100 families. So if we're already strained in transportation, or strained in public education, or strained in, in, in just resources, then how are you putting these other families in that position? So we need, before, we need a moratorium on all luxury development right now in Queens until we had a feasibility study done on all the projects and had a real conversation about what the impact is on local resources. Does that include Sunnyside Yards? What, what's your perspective on Sunnyside Yards? A- absolutely. I mean, you have NYCHA just down the block. How do you build luxury in the middle of a community that you've been devastating? That just makes no sense. The fact that we've been having this conversation is challenging that people will propose building some luxury part of Queens when, again, you haven't taken care of the people that actually live in the communities. 
you have you have people running for the same borough president position that you had on your program that have taken real, real estate developer money. That, that's how they're funding their campaigns. But they can't be independent enough to vote against a project when they're accepting the money of these developers. Do you reject any development at Sunnyside Yards or just uh, a luxury-oriented development? I think there can be responsible de- development done. But again, I first thing we need to do is address the immediate needs of the community before we start building something else. If it's something that's going to be built that's going to complement the needs of the community, then that just makes sense. But if you're doing something, again, that's not built to enhance the community which you're building in, then there's something wrong with even talking about those type of projects. Anthony Miranda, I want to thank you so much for appearing on City Watch tonight. How can people learn more about you and your work and the campaign? Please, uh, you can visit my website at www.miranda4queens.com. Um, I have a lot of information on there. We have volunteers. We wanted the volunteers and join our team. We've been expanding every day and growing our teams in different parts of the community. You can also give me a call on, on my phone number. Again, my, my direct cell would be 646-772-3728. If you have a direct issue, you need to talk to me directly. Please give me a call directly. I'm the guy... My number hasn't changed for the last 20 or 30 years, so you can always reach me directly. I know people say we shouldn't do that, but my phone number's out there. <laughs> no, what? Cool. Few, few people do that, but thank you. And, in fact, I think I have it from when I used to interview you, so thank yeah, you. I, so it hasn't changed for 40 years, so I'm just saying, this is the website. Send me an email. Again, I've been all over Queens. We, I respond back to those emails. I will respond back to you and give you the information you need, but please send me an email and, and now, so I can have the opportunity to talk back to you. I appreciate, I appreciate the opportunity to come on your program and, and sharing this with the community. Thank you so much you. for appearing here. So you are listening to WBAI's 99.5 FM City Watch, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. I am joined in studio tonight by David Brand, the managing editor of the Queen's Daily Eagle. And we're going to go to our next guest, another candidate for Queensborough president, Elizabeth Crowley. She previously served as the council member in the 30th Council District for nine years. And during that time, she chaired the fire and criminal justice committees. Among her accomplishments, she had fought against the closure of close to 20 fire companies. She also spearheaded the effort to investigate the unethical practice of the then Queens library head who spent more than $300,000 on personal extravagances. I think this was before you came to <laughs> before the Queens Eagle. Before the Queens Eagle. And she also had founded the 21 and in 21 initiative, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women to run for local office. She's a Glendale resident born and raised in Queens. And if I read this correctly, the 14th of 15th children in her family. Welcome to City Watch. Great. Uh, thanks, Jeff. That is correct. I'm the 14th of 15 children, uh, born and raised in Queens, Queens resident all my life. Uh, great to be on WBAI 99.5 FM with you and David Brand. So why pursue this position? Why is this position the perfect one for you? There are a number of reasons why I'm running for Queensborough president. Uh, when I decided to go to school, you know, I was uh, not one that went to study government, politics, law, like many politicians do. I followed my passions, and that was in the arts. I worked on some of the greatest historic landmarks in New York City after graduating with a degree in art restoration. And it was on those job sites, working alongside union members, that I uh, decided to run for office. I was going to graduate school at the time, studying architecture and urban planning, 
and uh, was with the encouragement of my union and knowing that there were not enough people like me. You know, I was a single mom at the time and a union member, not enough people and voices like mine in the city council. Uh, Councilman Crowley, this is David Brand. Thanks for talking with us tonight. I want to get started talking about community board appointments. Um, no community board in Queens is representative of the district, uh, of the community district. When it comes to race, Latino uh, New Yorkers are underrepresented on uh, every single community board. Women are underrepresented on several, sometimes egregiously so. You had nominating power for Community Board 5 during your time in the council. Why isn't that community board more representative of Community District 5? Dave, that's a great question. I want to thank you for doing your thorough examination and studying the various different uh, ethnic diversities on our community board, and you're absolutely right. It's not diverse enough, and part of the reason I started an organization called 21 in 21 to help more women run for office is because we need to hear women's voice. We don't. We have so many different city committees in government where we are deciding serious uh, budgetary expenses or legislation. You don't have a woman's voice, and so it's true on a local community board. There's one thing uh, that I did not have the power to do and was appoint community board members. I could recommend, but uh, there were many times my recommendations were met with a no. Hmm. And so as a borough president, you have the ultimate decision as to who goes on that board. And I am certainly one who is committed to diversity and doing more so that we have not only ethnic diversity, but age diversity. We don't have enough young people on our community boards, as well as, as you mentioned, gender diversity. So if you were to win the election on March 24th, uh, you would not immediately get appointing power. That would be done by the current acting borough president. Uh, the applications are done, close at the end of this month. Would you reopen the application period or, as some, bur- as some boroughs do, uh, institute rolling applications? I would immediately change that. I, as under my uh, belief as to the way to read the charter is that those appointments don't happen until April. Uh, and so that the borough president doesn't have a whole lot of time, but to stay on schedule with community board appointments, there is some time, provided the election's not too close and it gets called right away and uh, the borough president takes office as quickly as possible. So I want to go to another. Oh, did you have a follow up? No. Okay, I want to go to another question. One thing that happened last week, uh, council member, is that when we were having some candidates on, we got a lot of comments on Twitter asking us to bring up certain issues. And one that has come up is about bike lanes and input from communities. And I'm curious if, as borough president, what you would do as far as holding workshops or events in each community board so people in the communities can actually work together to come up with some type of a bike network. Yeah, that's a great idea. I support bikes. I support all many modes of transit. I feel like uh, we don't do enough to get people out of cars. Um, and uh, transportation is a cornerstone of my plan to change the borough and to move it forward. I mentioned earlier I studied planning in grad school, and it was there that I truly learned how important it was to have a clear, transparent, democratic process when it comes to community changes. And it was there that I learned about how important community visioning sessions were. And so absolutely, I am totally in support of doing that for proper bike lanes. I do think that I'm the only one in the race that put aside funds to make a protected bike lane. Uh, There's a a bike path that takes people from Brooklyn to Queens, and currently it's dangerous. 
I put funds aside that would uh, bring people off a dangerous lane and into a park. And um, it's currently budgeted. It hasn't been executed yet, but I know it's still in the budget and plans happen. Transit is really, I think, how you've oriented your campaign or uh, what you have put as the focal point of your campaign. So when it comes to bike lanes, community boards often uh, reject planned expansions to the bike network. How deferential would you be to community boards on issues like uh, bike lanes? It's my hope to have a community board uh, in place in under a year's time, just about a year's time, that we'll have the closest gear to the ground when it comes to what the community needs. And I would like to defer completely to the community boards. I don't think that you'll have... uh, you know, community boards that are voting against bike lanes. As far as I know, there was only one controversial vote in Sunnyside, and it was like a back and forth. Uh, has there been many other community boards that have been rejecting bike lanes? I think in the bike lane extension on Queens Boulevard, that's been controversial in the community board. But that I think that's a good example, though, that because that was the most high-profile one uh, back in 2018 in sunny in yeah. Sunnyside, and the community board rejected that proposal. Uh, would you have, if as borough president, would you have made your uh, advisory, in your advisory role, would you have deferred to the community board there rejecting those bike lanes? I can't say with certainty. I was not a part of it. And again, the community board wouldn't reflect the community that I would put on because as you mentioned, that is one of the community boards that doesn't reflect the diversity of the district. And I will have the ability to change the community boards. Um, that answers your question. It's hard <laughs> not to really, say, but... So Even the council member in that area was supported, and then he took his support away, and then he, was, then he ultimately supported it again. So um, in order to know why that was difficult one for the community board, I would have to know the specifics of it. I do, you know, earlier you mentioned my time on the council and how for nine years I served in eight of those nine years I was the chair of the fire committee. I spoke to the captain at the firehouse and he told me that they cannot put a proper uh, truck in place near some of those buildings with the bike lanes there. Hmm. So it poses a danger for emergencies like uh, a search and rescue that a fire truck would need to do then that's something I'm concerned about. And that I also brought to the attention of the fire commissioner. So it's not something you think about, but those are things that have come to my attention about that particular bike lane, and I've uh, taken action because of it. What do you think of the MPA's bus network redesign plan as it currently stands? I think it's big. I said to the then uh, MPA, uh, you know, Byford, that it needs to change and that we need to uh, make sure that Queen's Bus Service is is expanding, and uh, I also believe that we need to make a bus is free. No one else in this race has a good or as good a transit plan, and that's part of the reason I was endorsed by the Transport Workers Union, because they they believe my plan will be best to move people out of their cars, and as you mentioned, the train, but folks listening may not know about my transit plan, which is uh, there are three train lines in Queen's. We own the rights of way to, and we're not running passenger trains on these lines. Two of them are active and just moving freight. So, I has recently just agreed to study the second one, the Triborough extension. But we could provide over 20 square miles of transit access to a borough which is currently 85% considered, 85% of the borough is considered a transit desert. 
that's terrible, especially when you compare it to a neighboring borough, Brooklyn. Which Brooklyn doesn't have all that many more people, but their transit service, uh, they have twice as many train stops as us, and our trains are more overcrowded. So we need help. We need relief. And so don't take our buses away because when they are all we have, we need them, and we need them. We need them to get to work. We need them to get to school or just to get to uh, wherever we're, we're needing to go. So the uh, city council speaker, Corey Johnson, has been calling for the city to take back control of the subways for the past year or so. Do you support municipal control of the subways? I would have to see what exactly his plan is, but I support more municipal seats on the MPA. I feel like when it comes to the railroad, such as Long Island Road, which comes through Queens, it's, it's serving more the people of Long Island and not the communities that travel through, sort of using Queens as a doormat. And we're funding it. New York City is funding the vast majority of the cost of running that railroad, and we get nothing back for it. So in some ways, I want to make sure that we have stronger control, certainly, of our New York City transit trains, but also of the railroads. Uh, so I don't think that the railroads are in Corey Johnson's plan. And so by having more seats on the MTA, you know, representing the population, especially when you look to the other counties uh, that have seats, we need our fair share. We don't get our fair share of transit, and we don't get our fair share in a lot of areas of the budget. And, uh, and it's about time we start having an advocate leading the borough and demanding our fair share. So shifting to land use and development, what is your uh – what do you propose for Willits Point, development at Willits Point? Let's do that 100% affordable. 100% affordable. What? So when you say that, what do you mean by affordable? Uh, well, not what's been built. Not enough affordable housing has been built in our borough. And like transit, we have not received our fair share. HPD has a budget, and each year it gets divvied out. On average, Queens gets less than 10% of that budget. We're at nearly 30% of the city's population. This has been going on for a generation. So a generational lack of investment in infrastructure, certainly housing infrastructure. When it comes to Willits Point, we need access to the water. I'd like to move the ferry uh, to have stops on the north side of Queens, which would include Willits Point. I think we need to clean up the Flushing Bay and provide water access and uh, a pedestrian walkway and park, similar to what was built for luxury high-rises in Long Island City. Too much has been given to some communities and certainly not enough to others. And so when I talk about fairness, I'm talking about within the borough as well. The the previous borough president co-chaired a task force on Willits Point that put forward two two proposals. One included a soccer stadium and a moderate amount of uh, housing and affordable housing. The other was uh, mostly housing, some affordable housing, and uh, retail. Um, but it was a very opaque process. Would you turn over the information from the Willis Points Task Force that was uh, co-chaired by the former borough president? Absolutely. Um, what is your perspective on rezoning in the Flushing Waterfront District? Well, as long as we do uh, the plans that I've mentioned before as to uh, cleaning up the Flushing Bay and providing greater access to the waterway. Um, I'm open to mixed-use development, but with an emphasis on real affordable housing. 
major issue in Queens and New York City overall. And I think to me, the biggest issue affecting New York City is the homelessness crisis. Uh, there's opportunities with that rezoning and flushing, potential rezoning, uh, opportunity at Willits Point, and then also an opportunity if development does go forward at Sunnyside Yards to provide a lot of home, a lot of housing for the homeless. Uh, what is your? How would you use the borough president's office to help the homeless and to create housing? Well, you mentioned flushing Willits Point. We spoke about both of those areas, and then now you're just mentioning uh, Sunnyside Yards. Sunnyside Yards, the EDC has been looking at to do major development. The difference between my rail plan, which I spoke about earlier, and that opening up 20 square miles transit access in Sunnyside Yards is that you don't have to deck over the land that's underdeveloped near these trains. We need transit-orientated development. While Flushing and Willits Point are areas close to transit, the 7 train is overburdened, and homelessness is happening all along that train line because too many of our families are doubling and tripling up. About 6,000 families in Queens go homeless a year, yet we're housing about 10,000 homeless people. Now, the mayor has a failed homeless plan. It, it is, he has taken a bad situation and he's made it even worse. A few people are getting wealthy of housing the homeless, and nobody in the homeless shelters is getting real access to true affordable housing. And we need a plan that will take people out of homeless shelters and put them in housing. And currently, there's no plan like that. How can the borough? How, how could the borough president uh, make sure a plan like that happens? Like using the actual power of the borough presidency, what would you do to try to house homeless New Yorkers? I'm talking about like the largest public public works project ever to hit the borough, opening up 20 square miles of transit access. The other projects you mentioned, Willits Point, Flushing, and Sunnyside Yards are, are, are projects that are going to happen or could happen, but on overburdened train lines. Part of the reason protesters were out there protesting against the proposed Amazon plan was because there aren't any rooms. There's no room on those subway trains when it's close to 9 o'clock and you have to get into Grand Central Terminal or out of Queens or to another part of Queens. The E train and the 7 train are over 100% at capacity. So we're going to build more all along those lines. We can take our railroad. We can take the railroad that stops at Willits Point and put more trains on that. Even though they're putting more trains on the seven train, there's a limit to that capacity. If there's plenty more capacity on a Long Island railroad. We can run trains in Queens within the city boundaries. We can run trains more frequently, and it should cost the same as a one-swipe metro card. How, how does that relate to uh, ending homelessness in Queens or significantly addressing homelessness you need you need to build housing in areas that are rich in transit you're going to open up land that's currently undervalued because it's zoned m1 and it's being used as stop and storage facilities or underutilized and underbuilt if you go build at sunnyside yards you're going to have to put a platform on the land which is a billion dollars a square acre so you're already talking about a much more expensive project is it likely to happen? Yes. Uh, developers are willing to pay that type of money to develop Sunnyside Yard. However, there's lots of area space to do public-private partnerships to build real housing in Queens, as long as we put the transit there. Emerging businesses are not going to want to open 
shop in and along these transit lines unless they have the train there. Then these new lines that aren't currently existing. That's what I could do as the borough president. They're doing it in the Bronx. The borough president in the Bronx got 40 train stops on the Metro North. And guess what? Those trains are going to be coming through Queens to get to Manhattan and not stopping. Is that fair? No. But it's happening. And that's major. That's a generational investment that we need to see happen here in Queens. So, Council Member, we've got just about two minutes left, and as um, my listeners know, I'm very focused on one big pet peeve that I have is what I see is often rampant placard abuse with people with police placards in their windows parking uh, improperly where anyone else would conceivably be getting a ticket or towed. What would you do as borough president to address this issue? Uh, I, I wouldn't be giving out placards. Period. I don't even know if the borough president gets placards. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't see that as a major issue right now, but it, it's annoying, and it's something that the Department of Transportation has to check down on, but I don't see my office as one that would take these cards and uh, have access to them. So uh, in the final two minutes, I do want to uh, mention that in this last fundraising period, you took in, took in considerably more uh, than the other uh, competitors in this race. You took in about close to $105,000 from 737 contributors since July 15th. What do you think is resonating with the voters in Queens as far as uh, your campaign? Why do you think you did so well this past period? Uh, there are a number of reasons. First, I'm the only woman out of, like, what I think there are nine, eight or nine candidates running. Um, and uh, my work in gender equity uh, for 21 and 21 and helping other women run for office, I think uh, women are starting to understand how important it is to have women like them run and hold office. I also think it's because I work harder. I mean, I've always been known as a council member to be a hardworking council member. I have real plans that are going to move the borough forward. And as you mentioned, those 737 contributors, it was on top of hundreds of people who have already contributed. It's a grassroots effort. I'm not meeting with community uh, developers. These are just regular, everyday New Yorkers, Queens residents that believe in my candidacy. You know it's not about me, but it's about us and our ideas. I have ideas. They have ideas. We all have ideas. Queens needs to be that borough where we finally say it's our time let's put big bold visionary plans in place that'll let us grow properly for today and into the future for tomorrow and how can people learn more about you and your work and your campaign they can visit my website or send me an email my email is elizabeth at elizabethcrowley.com and then my website is www.elizabethcrowley.com thank you uh, elizabeth crowley thank you so much for joining david brand and me thank jeff you. simmons here on wbai tonight thanks jeff thanks jeff. david really had a nice time thanks for having me on. thank you council member so I wanted to save the final few minutes just to talk with you. Something that uh, I think you touched on before we even started the show, uh, and I talked with Christine Chung about this. So for, especially for our listeners who weren't turning in, tuning in on Thursday, the the presence of the progressive movement in this race mm -hmm. seems very minimal. Mm -hmm. As much as we've heard candidates, you know, everyone talking about being the next AOC, 
I'm not seeing that in this campaign, and I'm not seeing uh, as much as Jimmy Van Bramer did have support from some of those who were uh, outspoken voices in the progressive movement. You're not seeing that here. Why do you think that's the case? Well, I think when it comes to DSA in particular, they tend to pick their spots. And so when you look at all of the races coming up, uh, the borough president race, but then also the races for state assembly, state senate, they're only endorsing one candidate in Queens. And so they, I think they reserve their resources, reserve their endorsement. Um, I don't think there was a candidate that appealed to them. I think a lot of the candidates who are in this race have, are, you know, part of established political circles, um, that weren't appealing. I don't know how much Van Bramer appealed to some of the Western Queens progressives. Um, you see, you know, you think about the next AOC, AOC's campaign manager does work for Miranda, but, uh, I don't think anyone in Western Queens sees him as like, a progressive heir apparent to uh, AOC Caban. Although I'm trying to think, I, I went through all their Twitter feeds, and I think Andy uh, Anthony Miranda had even described himself uh, in uh, his profile somewhere, might have even been on his website as being uh, progressive. I'm so overseeing every single person candidate running. As we're getting into the 2021 races, everyone's saying they're more progressive than the next person. Uh, we've got just about two minutes left. Uh, in the coming weeks, as you follow this campaign, what are the things you're going to be looking out for? You're going to be looking for uh, the next campaign filings. Uh, Councilwoman Crowley told me a few days ago that she would reject all uh, contributions from developers or people related to the development community. So just going through her filings, see if that's true, and picking out ones where maybe she'll have to return. So that's one specific, very specific thing. Um, going to see uh, if any if any of the other candidates decide to drop out. And also going to see there are a few conservative candidates, and I think Jim Quinn, the former veteran prosecutor in Queens, whose entire campaign message is uh, vocalizing resistance to the state bail, bail reforms. Reform which is not something a borough president really has any power over. And yet he can make that a winning issue, I think, if he appeals to a lot of, you know, there's 25 percent uh, Republicans and very conservative Democrats in Queens. If he can galvanize them and then maybe pick off a few more conservatives and then people uh, more on the left, the Democratic contingent split the vote. You never know. Eric Ulrich won Queens in the public advocates race uh, when there was more than a dozen candidates and he he got his conservative voters out. I mean, maybe Quinn could do that as well. I don't know. So I guess seeing how people uh, come together around him on the on the right. And how can people learn more about you and discover the Queen's Daily Eagle? <laughs> well, I'm not going to give my cell phone out like uh, Anthony <laughs> oh, yeah. Miranda did, which I, I do respect. But please, you can follow me on Twitter. It's David F. Brand, uh, the Queen's Eagle. Uh, I call myself the hype managing editor because I'm the hype man and the managing editor. So I have to be the street team, too. So please check us out, queenseagle.com. Follow us on Twitter, at queenseagle. Uh, you can send me an email, david at queenspublicmedia. Looking forward to continuing this race, writing more about it, writing more about Queens politics. Please reach out to me. Send me some story ideas. Tell me what we need to be looking at with the Queens Eagle. We're a small team, but we are mighty. 
Um, so I'm looking forward to connecting with more people in Queens and elsewhere in New York. Thank you for having me. David Brand would love to have you back again in studio. So thank you for joining me you. today. I also want to thank our guests, the Queensboro president candidates, Anthony Miranda and Elizabeth Crowley. Uh, also, just two events to let you know about. Coming up tomorrow night, Monday, Jackson Heights Jewish Center, there will be a forum with the candidates. And then also on February 4th in the morning at, I never say this right, Antunes, Antunes. Uh, you say it quickly, so maybe. Ant- Antunes. Antunes. In the morning in Queens, uh, Queens Chamber of Commerce is also having a, a candidates forum as well, where they'll be focusing on their visions for the economy and business in Queens. I'll be back this Thursday at five o'clock with driving forces with the latest on state and national politics. Of course, we'll be discussing Trump and impeachment and whatever is going on down in Washington, D.C. And if you missed any part of this show, visit WBAI.org. Go to programs, then archives. The show will be up in about 10 minutes, but I'll also be posting it on SoundCloud and tweeting it out at my Twitter handle at Jack Heights, J-A-C-K-H-I-T-E-S. So thanks again for joining me today and please stay tuned for the golden age of radio with Max Schmidt.